If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Amos chapter 9 as we conclude our time in the book of Amos this week, looking at the last chapter of the book of Amos. And if you've been with us or are familiar with the book of Amos, you'll know that there is a lot of bad news all throughout the book. In fact, it's mostly bad news. It's mostly an announcement of judgment. But yet here in the last chapter, and actually the last five verses of the chapter, the Lord gives us through Amos a a glimpse and a promise of great hope and great joy. And so as we look at the text of Amos chapter 9 this morning, we'll we'll first read uh, verses 1 through 10, and we'll see there the promise of judgment. And then after we've considered that, we'll read verses 11 through 15, and we'll see the second point, which is the promise of restoration. So we have the promise of judgment and the promise of restoration. Let's look to verses 1 through 10. Amos writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Smite the capitals so that the thresholds will shake and break them on the heads of them all. Then I will slay the rest of them with the sword. They will not have a fugitive who will flee or a refugee who will escape. Though they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword that it will slay them. And I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, the one who touches the land so that it melts, and all those who dwell in it mourn. And all of it rises up like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt. The one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and has founded his vaulted dome over the earth. He who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? Have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Arameans from Kir? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I am commanding, and I will shake the house of Israel among all nations, as grain is shaken in a sieve, but not a kernel will fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say the calamity will not overtake or confront us. Now in these ten verses, the Lord calls for and announces the judgment which was going to come upon the nation of Israel. He had sent his prophet Amos to them, had threatened them with judgment, and had called them to repentance. This call to repentance had been both explicit and at times implicit. Explicit calls to repentance had been seen, uh, as we saw in Amos chapter 5, verses 4 through 6, Amos chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And 
as to the implicit call to repentance, where the Lord is actually summoning to them to repent without so much as saying it explicitly, broadly speaking, I think we need to understand that most announcements of judgment in the Scriptures are actually calls to repentance. And Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 and 8, gives us a framework from which to work as we think about this issue of implicit calls for repentance. And so in Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8, the Lord says, At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot or pull down or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I planned to bring on it. And there have been plenty of announcements of this kind of coming judgment found in Amos' message to Israel. And if the nation of Israel would have turned, they would have found mercy from the Lord, just as, just as Jeremiah declared in Jeremiah 18, that if this nation against which the Lord announces a judgment, if they turn, then the Lord also would turn from the calamity that he had announced to them. And this chapter provides yet one more announcement of such judgment. And as we, as we consider this, I want you to notice three aspects of the judgment that was going to come upon the nation of Israel. One, it would be a judgment in which there would be no hiding. Secondly, it would be a judgment in which there would be no legitimate place for a plea of special treatment. Also, it would be a discriminating judgment. Not all would be treated exactly alike when judgment came upon the nation. So it would be a judgment in which there would be no hiding, be a judgment in which there would be, could be no pleas for special treatment and also a discriminating judgment. And let's look at each of these aspects in turn. So first we find in verses 2 through 4 that there would be no hiding from this judgment that was coming upon them. The Lord is very clear there that there was no place to which anyone could flee where they would be safe from the judgment that was coming upon them. Notice there in verses 2 through 4 you have a string of five those statements, or if you're using the ESV, they would be if statements. Though they dig into Sheol, though they ascend to heaven, though they hide on the summit of Carmel, though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, though they go into captivity. Even if they did all of those things, even though they were to do all of those things, there would still be no way of escape. This is because... The Lord's hand would take them from Sheol and would bring them down from the heights of heaven and would search out and take them from Carmel and command the serpent to bite them in the sea and command the sword to kill them in captivity. If the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, as is affirmed in Isaiah 59.1, then neither is it too short to execute judgment. If it's true that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate believers from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, then it is equally true that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate the wicked from the righteous judgment of God. There would be no hiding from the judgment of God that was coming upon the nation of Israel. Similarly, there would be no place for pleas of special treatment. And this, I think, is what verse 7 is getting at. The nation of Israel had a tendency to think of themselves as special. They're probably not unique. We all have a tendency to think of ourselves as special. We're the exceptions. 
They, after all, were the chosen people. The Lord had done great and wonderful things for them. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 through 38, made it very clear about the wondrous things that the Lord had done for them. He had spoken to them. He had given them the law at Mount Sinai. He brought them out of Egypt with an outstretched arm and with great terrors. And this fact that they were the chosen people gave them great privileges, no doubt. But it also laid upon them the responsibility to trust and to obey the Lord. And as it turned out, the people of Israel often reveled in the privileges of being the chosen people while they simultaneously failed to live up to the responsibility that was theirs as the chosen people. So, for instance, just think of how later on John the Baptist and Jesus would interact with the Jewish people in this regard. We hear the words of John the Baptist in Luke 3, 8, where he said, Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. In other words, John the Baptist is saying, don't don't think that you're special. Don't think that you get off the hook from this call to repentance because we're the children of Abraham. He says, no, you have to repent. We hear the words of Jesus in John chapter 8, 39 through 41, where he said, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. And as Jesus continues there in John 8, he makes it clear that their spiritual father is the devil because they're following in the steps of Satan, not the steps of Abraham and not in the steps of God. These were people who gloried in their status as the descendants of Abraham, but they did not live in accordance with that status. They did not follow in the steps of Abraham. They did not repent of their sins and trust in the Lord, and thus their privileged status turned out to be of no benefit to them. And here in verse 7, the Lord makes it clear to the Israelites that they are not going to receive special treatment in this judgment simply because they are the descendants of Abraham. He says, Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me, O sons of Israel? He says, Have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Arameans from Kir? In other words, Israel doesn't get a pass just because they're the descendants of Abraham. Are they not just like the Ethiopians as far as the Lord is concerned? Why would they not be just like the sons of the Ethiopians? They were certainly not living in accordance with their covenant obligations. It's true that the Lord had brought up Israel out of Egypt, but he had also rearranged the geographies of other nations. He had brought the Philistines up from Kaftor, which perhaps is Crete or Cappadocia, He had also brought the Arameans from the land of Kerr, which is probably what we would know as as northern Iran today, and had placed them then in the land of Syria. The point is that the the Lord had moved other nations around as well. Israel didn't have a monopoly on that distinction. They'd been moved out of Egypt in a uniquely powerful way, but that did not render them immune from the judgment of God, which was coming. And failing to live in accordance with the Lord's commands, the people of Israel should not count on special treatment. Behaving as the other nations of the world, they deserve to be treated as the other nations of the world. And that brings us then to this third aspect of judgment, that it would be a discriminating judgment. Not the entire nation would be treated exactly alike. Though verse 1 might have inclined us to think that perhaps the nation was going to be annihilated, 
Inasmuch as the Lord says, Then I will slay the rest of them with the sword. They will not have a fugitive who will flee or a refugee who will escape. But nevertheless, verse 9 informs us that this was not going to be a complete annihilation of the nation. There would be a remnant. The nation would be destroyed from the face of the earth, but not totally, not completely. And verse 9 seems to point to what would happen to the godly remnant. The house of Israel would be shaken, but not a kernel would fall to the ground, which seems to be getting at the fact that though the entire nation would be shaken through, through judgment, the judgment of conquest and of exile and so on, this shaking would be essentially like the process of, of threshing grain. And the chaff would be separated and discarded while the precious grain would be preserved. And thus it is that the end of verse 9 states that not a kernel would fall to the ground. In other words, the entire nation would be shaken, but the godly remnant would be preserved through God's purposes. Calvin commented on this verse by explaining that though the Lord involves his servants with the ungodly when he executes temporal punishment, he is yet ever favorably inclined to them. And it is certain that however hardly they may be dealt with, they do not protest. They groan indeed, but at the same time they acknowledge that they are mercifully treated by the Lord. So the Lord preserves the remnant through this judgment that he was bringing on them. But then on the other hand, we have the the destiny of the wicked laid out for us there in verse 10. All of the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say the calamity will not overtake or confront us. Thus, this judgment would be a discriminating judgment. The godly ultimately would not be treated exactly the same as the wicked. Though the righteous are often swept away in one sense with the wicked in earthly and temporal judgments. Just think hurricanes, tornadoes, coronavirus, whatever. The godly and the wicked both suffer from these things. Nevertheless, in suffering those things, they're not treated exactly the same. The judgment comes upon the wicked and ultimately culminates in their destruction, eventually, maybe not immediately, but eventually. But these temporal judgments come upon the righteous and God preserves them and uses it for their salvation and brings them closer to himself in one way or another. Sometimes temporal judgments result in the death of the righteous, which brings them immediately into the presence of the Lord forever. Sometimes temporal judgment does not bring the death of the righteous, but rather brings an opportunity to grow in holiness. So we read in 2 Peter 3.9 that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. There's a, there's a discrimination in the way that the Lord deals with people. The righteous and the wicked are not ultimately treated exactly alike, even though to the outward eye it may appear at first and on the surface that they are treated exactly alike. Nevertheless, the Lord says there in verse 9 that a kernel will not fall to the ground. He'll take care of the godly ones. And so we have these three aspects of judgment, that there be no hiding, that there be no legitimate place for a plea of special treatment, and that there be a righteous discrimination in the judgment And these aspects of the judgment which came upon the nation of Israel will all be aspects of the judgment when Christ returns at the end of the age to judge the living and the dead. 
And so we're told in Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 to 17, about the kings and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and the slaves and the free who will hide themselves in caves and among the rocks and the mountains and will indeed cry out to those rocks and mountains and say, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? They'll try to hide. But this hiding will be to no avail. There'll be no hiding that can separate the wicked from the wrath of God when the day of judgment comes. And this is because the Lord rules over all. He is the sovereign creator. He is the sovereign judge, the sovereign God. And this is the reality that verses 5 and 6 are pointing to, where we read about the Lord being the one who touches the land so that it melts, and those who dwell in it mourn. We see here in these verses God's sovereign control. He created the earth, he does what he wishes on the earth. He's the Lord. He sees all, he knows all. And likewise, there will be no legitimate pleas for special treatment on the final day. The Lord has announced one way of salvation, faith in Jesus Christ. All who are in that way of salvation will be known by their deeds and will be judged accordingly. Though our deeds do not in the least save us, they testify as to whether we belong to the Lord or not. It's not the one who merely claims the name of Jesus, but the one who actually does the will of God the Father that will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And despite whatever might be claimed uh, by those who do not walk in the light, they might claim that they know Christ, but Christ will be very clear that they are not known by him on the last day. And likewise, the day of judgment on the last day will be a discriminating judgment in which there will be a righteous discrimination of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will judge according to the truth. As he tells us, he will separate the sheep from the goats. He'll take his sheep to his eternal kingdom and send the goats to eternal hell. In short, there is a great and terrible day of judgment coming, a final judgment that is but a shadow Excuse me, the the judgment that is described here is but a shadow of that day which is coming. And there is only one way to stand in the final day of judgment. And that is repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the final verses of the book of Amos actually direct our attention toward Christ. And so let's look to verses 11 through 15 as we come to our second point this morning, which is the promise of restoration. There's a promise of judgment, but praise God, there is also a promise of restoration. Verse 11, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom And all nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows seeds, when the mountains will drip sweet wine, and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine, make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. After denouncing the wickedness of Israel, calling the nation to repentance and announcing the judgment of God, 
the Lord, through Amos, gives us these five verses at the end of the book. Five verses that are full of hope, full of this promise of restoration. So what is this hope? It is the hope that comes when David's tent, his booth, his tabernacle, is raised up. Now what does this mean? Verse 11, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Now, in order to understand what is meant here, we need to understand just what this fallen booth of David actually is and how it is raised up and rebuilt. And so what is David's fallen booth? Well, David, as we know, was the great king of Israel. He's a man after God's own heart. He was a great sinner, to be sure, but he repented and found mercy. And being forgiven much, he loved much. And not only was he the Jewish king par excellence, he was a king with whom God had made a covenant. A covenant in which God said that he would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Saying, as we find in 2 Samuel 7, 16, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. But the Old Testament history makes clear to us that the successors of David and Solomon as they were kings upon the throne of the southern kingdom there of Judah, they were a mixed bag, weren't they? They were some good men, some bad men. There were multiple shades of gray in between. And if you read those histories of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, we find that it's, it's, ult- it's ultimately a demise. You have, have some high points, you have some low points, but it all, it all goes downhill and ends in disaster. The end of Second Kings and the end of... Second Chronicles, we find the kingdom itself had collapsed. The descendants of David were still living, but they were not reigning at the conclusion of those books. And though when Amos was prophesying, the, the booth of David was still standing, there was still a Davidic king in Jerusalem, nevertheless, verse 11 looks forward to a time when that booth had collapsed, only after it had fallen would it be built up again when God would show himself faithful to uphold this promise that he had made to David? And that promise was fulfilled with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it was that the angel Gabriel said to Mary, Luke 1, 32 and 33, concerning Jesus, he will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom Will have no end. Now, what is this but the rebuilding of the fallen booth of David? David's booth had fallen. Where was, the, where was the promise to David that he would forever have a descendant on his throne? It's right there. It's Jesus. And notice here from verse 12 in the text what happens once this kingdom is restored. The kingdom is rebuilt, then verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. Who does this? In other words, the kingdom is expanded. When the Lord rebuilt David's tent, when he rebuilt the kingdom, it would include the remnant of Edom, who had in David's day been a a horrible enemy to the Israelites. But the kingdom would expand, it would include Edom, it would include all the nations who are called by the Lord's name, all whom the Lord would call from whatever nation they might have belonged to. Old enemies would be included in the kingdom. 
old enemies would be brought to bow their knee to the king. And how does this occur? It occurs by the preaching of the gospel in the New Testament times, as Gentiles are brought into the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is not simply my educated guess on how verses 11 and 12 play out. James tells us this in so many words in Acts chapter 15, as we read together this morning. Acts 15, as we saw, was the Jerusalem council. Paul and Barnabas had gone up to Jerusalem to speak to the apostles and the elders about the question of circumcision, whether this should be required of Gentiles who had believed in Christ, whether it should be required of them in order to be saved. Paul and Barnabas reported how the Gentiles had been saved through faith in their ministry. Peter, likewise, gives the testimony of how Cornelius and his household had received the Holy Spirit. There was no distinction between circumcised and the uncircumcised in regard to the receiving of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter expressed his faith that the ground was level and that all were saved in the same way in Acts 15, 11, when he said, But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way as they also are. And when Peter and Paul and Barnabas stopped speaking, then James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, spoke up and applied these words of verses 11 and 12 to the reality that they were there considering at that time, both considering and experiencing. The Gentiles, the nations, were being brought to faith in Christ. And James says, brethren, listen to me. Simeon, Simon Peter, has related how God was first concerned about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And then he quotes uh, Acts 15, verses 16 through 18. He quotes roughly, but not precisely, the, uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, the Septuagint text of Amos 9, 11, and 12. He says, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Now, set there in the context of Acts 15, it seems clear that this pro- how this prophecy is functioning in James's thinking. As he considers these reports from, from Peter and from Paul and Barnabas about the Gentiles coming to saving faith in Christ, he sees this as the fulfillment of the prophecy of Amos. He understands that the Gentiles are coming to faith, and his mind goes to Amos 9 as if to say, of course, David's fallen tent is rebuilt when the Messiah comes. The Messiah has come. The kingdom is restored, albeit spiritually, but really restored. Since Christ's kingdom is not of this world, the kingdom is expanding spiritually. And now look what happens. The nations, the Gentiles, are coming to faith in the Lord. They're trusting in Jesus. They're taking the name of the Lord upon themselves. This is the reality that that James saw. He saw it prophesied in Amos, and he saw it playing out in real time before him. And what this means then is that Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, is great news. This is the gospel. This is the promise of the Messiah who would come and bring restoration to what was broken. Namely, in this case, the Davidic kingdom, which the Lord would restore and did restore in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And this would be good news not only for Jews, but also for Gentiles. The Davidic kingdom would expand and would encompass them. The nations of the world would be called by the name of the Lord as people from those nations would submit to the Lord's anointed king, the Davidic Messiah. 
namely Jesus Christ, our Lord. This was where all of the Old Testament was pointing. This was how God's promise to Abraham would be kept, the promise of Genesis 12:3 that all families of the earth would be blessed in him. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 2:8, where God the Father says to the Son, the anointed king, "Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession." And then in what follows, as the book concludes in verses 13 through 15, we have a picturesque description of the blessings that would come both in those times and in times following. We can think of these, uh, at least in some cases, as spiritual blessings depicted in physical and earthly terms. And yet, at the same time, there is also a literal sense in which the restored people of God will be fixed forever in a land from which they will never be uprooted. And so in verse 13, we have this picture of agricultural abundance. The reaper has so much to reap that he can't get finished with the harvest before the plowman is at his heels and is plowing up the ground for next year's crop. There will be such an abundance of grapes being harvested and tread into wine that the wine treading season would extend far beyond its normal time to the time at which seed would be sown for the next year's grain crop. And the end of verse 13 makes it clear at the very least, that some of this language must be taken figuratively. We read there, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Calvin's comment was, we indeed know that this has never happened, but this manner of speaking is common and often occurs in Scripture. The sum of the whole is that there will be no common or ordinary abundance of blessings, but will exceed belief and even the course of nature as the very mountains shall, as it were, flow down. In other words, there would be great spiritual blessings that came to the world when David's tabernacle was rebuilt at the coming of Christ. And just think with me for a moment about about the events that follow the coming of Christ. Think about the book of Acts, how the gospel went from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. We know Acts 1.8 And so just think with me. There was the day of Pentecost. There was growth of the Jerusalem church. By the time you get to Acts 6-7, Luke tells us that the word of God kept spreading and the number of disciples was continuing to increase greatly in Jerusalem and that a great many of the priests even were becoming obedient to the faith. We have Philip evangelizing Samaria. We have him evangelizing the Ethiopian eunuch. We have Peter being sent to Cornelius. We have those who were scattered by persecution taking the gospel up to Antioch and a large number of people there believing and turning to the Lord in Acts 11. And then we have the church at Antioch turning around and sending out Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And then Paul turns the world upside down by preaching Jesus and eventually reaching Rome by the end of the book of Acts. Is it any wonder then that Paul could write to the Colossians when he was imprisoned there in Rome and he could speak of the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel was bearing fruit all over the world. Men like Paul did the planting and like Apollos were doing the watering but God was continually giving the increase. The gospel was going out into all the world and bearing fruit. The kingdom of God had started small, but it was growing and was beginning to fill all the earth, just as 
had been prophesied in that vision that Nebuchadnezzar had seen in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel had then interpreted. There was that small stone that struck the statue and then that stone continued to grow. The statue toppled over but the stone grew and formed a mountain that filled all of the earth as symbolic of the growth of the kingdom of God, a kingdom which will never be destroyed. The point is that after the coming of Christ, the Davidic kingdom is expanded to all nations and there is great fruitfulness And then verses 14 and 15 direct us to the restoration of Israel. There is the rebuilding of ruined cities. There's the planting of vineyards. There's the making of gardens. Verse 15 tells us that the Lord would plant them on their own land and they would not be rooted out again from their land. Now what should we make of this? There are various understandings of how verses 14 and 15 should be interpreted. Some would see this as being literally fulfilled in an earthly millennium. Some would view this as a figurative description of the church age, meaning that God will preserve and defend his church, that Christ will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that sort of thing. I think it's possible, though, that these words of verses 14 and 15 may point us to the ultimate and final restoration of God's people and their security in their final habitations. If we think about the various restorations of the Jews, it's certainly true that God brought back the Jews out of Babylon and that Christ came into the world in the centuries following that restoration. But it's also true that subsequent events rooted them out of the land again, whereas verse 15 says that they would never be rooted out of the land. Now, on the basis of God's word to his people in Deuteronomy 28, it would seem that as long as sin and apostasy are possible then it's also possible for the people to get kicked out of the land. That's what happened in the Old Testament times to the northern kingdom as they were exiled by Assyria. That happened to the southern kingdom when they were exiled by Babylon. Most of Deuteronomy 28 is concerned with the consequences of disobedience, and those consequences include exile. However, if, as here, the state of affairs is such that they cannot and will not be removed from the land, it seems reasonable to suppose that perhaps one of the reasons they cannot be removed from the land is because they can no longer sin. The sinless state of the people of God will only exist after Christ returns and his kingdom is fully realized in the new heavens and new earth. The kingdom will remain secure, for as we read in Revelation 21:27, nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We're told in Revelation 22.3 that there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. And at the risk of perhaps getting too deeply into the doctrine of the end times, I just want to kind of say how I would see this kind of lining up with with other passages of Scripture. I would see uh, the same reality described here in verses 14 and 15 as uh, being the same reality pointed to in Ezekiel 39, verses 25 through 29, and both pointing to the final restoration of God's people. Those verses in Ezekiel 39 depict what happens after the war at Gog and Magog. The Lord there promises that he will restore the fortunes of his people, gather them from exile, and restore them to their land. And in the closing chapters of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 40 through 48, enlarge upon that restoration which is one that is spoken of in terms of Jerusalem 
And though it is spoken of in terms of Jerusalem, yet the picture that is painted of Jerusalem looks a whole lot like the new Jerusalem. That is, the Jerusalem found in Revelation 21 and 22. And this is especially the case when you get to Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47 has the description of the, the river flowing from the temple and the trees growing by the river whose leaves are for healing. That's what you find in Revelation 22. Revelation 22, too, the tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. And so all of that to say is that I think that the best way to understand verses 14 and 15 is that they point to the final restoration of Israel in the new heavens and the new earth when all of believing Israel will be saved and all believers of all nations will be joined with them forever in the worship of the son of David and in the enjoyment of his blessings. Now, obviously, not everyone agrees with me with that take on verses 14 and 15. That's okay. But wherever you come down on, those, on how those verses are fulfilled, we, we all need to acknowledge that this promise here at the end of the book of Amos demonstrates that God is good and that these words are a message of hope for Israel and they're also a message of hope for all nations. And this is a message of hope that comes into play with the rebuilding of the booth of David. And the good news that I bring to you today in proclaiming the gospel is that God has done this. He has raised up the tent of David by sending his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Jesus was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. And this is why Zacharias could say, as he anticipates the the birth of Jesus after his own son John was born, Zacharias in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 68, said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant, as he spoke by his holy prophets from of old. Jesus Christ is this horn of salvation. He's the Son of God who became a man. He lived a holy life and went to the cross to die for sinners and rose again on the third day. And as this good news is proclaimed, God calls all who hear it to believe upon his Son, to turn from their sins. And this means you, whoever you are, Whatever you've done, repent and believe in Christ. In Christ, there is the hope of the forgiveness of sins, of reconciliation with God and eternal life. Outside of Christ, there's nothing but judgment. We saw the judgment in verses 1 through 10. Christ is going to come one day to judge the world, and unless we're clothed with his righteousness through faith, we will bear his wrath. And so, friends, look to Christ. Turn from sin and trust in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your great mercy that we see even in the midst of an announcement of judgment. Nevertheless, we see mercy, we see restoration, we see hope. We praise you that our hope is in Christ in whom the fallen tabernacle of David is rebuilt. We thank you for the gift of eternal life and forgiveness that we have in him. We pray that you would build us up you would help us in all things, that we would grow up into Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.